This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. What a way to start a show, huh? <laughs> well, good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. <laughs> on our program on Sunday mornings, we try to have a, a good time. Gets you into some interesting discussions as well. And also, when we can make you actually start to think a little bit, too. This is going to be a doozy of a show today, over the next couple of hours, because we start things off in um, a discussion that's going to take us into a number of different areas, and a guest who has a very interesting background to bring to the discussion today, because he can cover a lot of different things in discussion. Now, Luke Salisbury is joining us on our program. Luke is the author of the Cleveland Indian, The Legend of King Saturday, and No Common War. And he'll be talking with us about these publications. He's a former secretary and vice president of the Society for American Baseball Research. He's contributed articles to many baseball books and magazines. And in his background, um, he's also at one time actually taught third grade in a section of the Bronx. And he has a lot of things to share with us in uh, this discussion because we're going to get into talking about um, these books. We'll also get into talking about an area of discussion that um, strikes a chord with a lot of people. And that surrounds this discussion about the Confederate monuments. First of all, Luke, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. Welcome to the fan. Good morning. Nice to be on the program. Was that Booker T doing green onions it's, I just heard? It certainly was. Yes. Well, speaking of history. <laughs> Glad you acknowledged that and recognized it, too. Um, well, maybe I'm giving away my age. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Glad you appreciate it. Um, so many different things I want to start off in uh, this discussion, but... You know, in introducing you, uh, I was talking a little bit about your uh, background, because one of the things that you had done, which intrigued me, in addition to your writing, is you actually at one time taught third grade in the Bronx. Yes, I did. I'm intrigued by this. What section of the Bronx, and chronologically, when are we talking? We're talking 1969, 1970, 
PS 47, which was on East 165th Street and St. Lawrence Avenue. And I taught to get a draft deferment, speaking of age. So that was roughly 50 years ago. Boy, it doesn't seem like it. I remember it because I was living on the west side of Manhattan. And every day, you know, I would take a bus and a subway. And it felt like going through the looking glass, going from where I lived way up into the Bronx. I learned an awful lot about America and about New York City that I couldn't have learned any other way. The students may not have learned so much, but it was really something. As a matter of fact, I wish everybody had to do some sort of community service like that in a place where you learn something you wouldn't learn otherwise. What were the students like? Oh, the students were great. Uh, I, I There was more verbal energy than anarchy. I wasn't very good at keeping order, but I certainly enjoyed listening. There was, having gone to a prep school, I thought I was pretty good verbally because we would sit around and insult each other or tell stories. It was nothing compared to eight- and nine-year-olds in the Bronx. <laughs> so what was it that made you interested in being or becoming a writer? Well, it's just one of those things. I think it was Nabokov that said there are two kinds of writers, those that want to be and those that have to be. And I'm more on the those that have to be side. And just because you have to be doesn't mean you're that good at it. I wrote the draft of a novel the summer of 1970 about a young man teaching in the Bronx. I didn't get a book published till 1989. And all that time I was writing different books. It took me a long time to learn how to do it better. But it's just the way I've organized my life is it, almost 10 years of researching something. I wrote about baseball. I wrote a novel called Hollywood and Sunset about the early movie industry. And now I'm writing uh, these three novels based on my family because my great-grandfather was wounded in the Civil War. His son became a military surgeon, was wounded in World War One, And my dad was missing in action in World War II and had been badly injured and taken prisoner and survived. And so I have all this family material, but I've always had this fascination with history. And we get into this issue of how do you understand or project yourself into history? How do you begin to understand the nuances of it? And, of course, I was a teacher at Bunker Hill Community College for many, many years. So I've had the experience of teaching. And you try to teach people to look at things in different ways and nuance. And one way to get history is to read fiction. Because it's something, I don't know, most people haven't read War and Peace. But if you do read it, and it really isn't hard to read, and it's a wonderful book, you quite won't be the same when you're done with it. Because when you look at things from the inside, and I think the only way you can really get inside people realistically is through fiction. Because we can write or study history about why Lee attacked at Gettysburg when he made that mistake and got wiped out. And we can speculate forever, but if you read a really good book, say The Killer Angels about command, I think you get a much deeper understanding. Not that you only should read fiction, but I think you need to come at things in, in many different ways. Tell us about your first novel. It's titled The Cleveland Indian. Well, I have been fascinated. Well, I'm a big baseball fan, and I notice you wisely suppress the fact that I'm a Red Sox fan. And by the way, I grew up on Long Island as a Red Sox fan. Oh, that must have been interesting. Well, as a friend of mine put it, that must have been like being an atheist in a monastery. (laughs) And, and, uh, well, there's all, as you undoubtedly know, there's that hardcore 
of New Yorkers that detest the Yankees. But that that's a whole other story. But what fascinated me about the Cleveland Indian is, first of all, there actually was an Indian, Louis Sokalexis, who played Major League Baseball. He was the first Native American to be recognized as a Native American. In 1897, he played for the team that was then called the Cleveland Spiders. And he had this tremendous natural ability, and he destroyed himself with drink very quickly. And I was always fascinated by that story, because here you have this three things kind of come together here. You have the frontier, you have the rise of baseball, you have the sense of an athletic genius who just isn't interested in what he can do with it. And the reason I made a novel out of it is because the actual guy didn't play that long. We don't know that much about him, other than he had quite a problem with alcohol. And so I wanted a story where the Indian could do all kinds of things. And it just fascinated me that we have this era, the 1890s, where the frontier is closing, actually declared officially closed by the 1890 census. And within a few years, a Native American appears playing baseball better than anyone had seen it played before, according to, say, John McGraw who is so famous for managing the Giants later, and also the destruction or self-destruction of talent fascinates me as well. So it's quite a saga. Now, I also wrote a book, a nonfiction book called The Answer is Baseball, in which there's a chapter about Tuck Alexis. So that was the nonfiction approach with everything that I could find out about the Indian, but it the world becomes so much bigger when you're writing fiction. And how long did it take you to write that first novel? Well, yes, you know, what was it when uh, James McNeil Whistler was asked, how long did it take you to paint Whistler's mother? And he said, my whole life, because I was preparing. The books I've written, because I was a full-time community college teacher, probably take about seven years, because it's a good two or three years of just researching. And by the way, if you write historical fiction, the research is so much fun, but the trap can be, you can research forever, because you almost get lost in a man's paradise. And so I had spent uh, maybe three years trying to research this. And of course, when you're writing historical fiction, you've got to know as much about the period as you can. The 1890s are fascinating time when baseball was kind of wide open, when men fought, and John McGraw playing third for the Baltimore Orioles would probably hold on to your belt if you were trying to score from third base. And if you didn't like it, you had to do something about it, and he was more than willing to to oblige you. <laughs> Sounds like a pretty raucous time, to say the least. Oh, it's kind of the, you know, the, the Wild West of baseball. Mm-hmm. It, it really is wonderful. How did you actually... In doing that book, how'd you, for lack of a better term, organize your mind around the project? Well, you start, that was the, that was before computers. Now, mm-hmm. of course, you go to Google. So in some sense, you did what the, the mental version of Google might be. And one thing I did was I joined SABRE, the Society for American Baseball Research, and immediately discovered someone who knew a great deal about Sock Alexis, who was very, very uh, generous with that. That was Cappy Gagnon, who's now the great uh, Notre Dame historian. And 
And the other thing is so much fun is going to newspapers. You go, in those days, it was microfiche. I go to the Boston Public Library. And the way the papers were written in the 1890s, it would be if the Red Sox, well, they weren't the Red Sox, and it was the Boston Bean Eaters in the National League. Remember, they had lost the day before. It said Boston couldn't even scare Philadelphia. <laughs> and and then you, you learn there is all this kind of code, like uh, if somebody had pneumonia, it probably meant that he had a social disease. If he had something else, it probably meant that he had a drinking problem, so on. Hmm. When you're talking about the approach that was taken with that first book, I mean, what was the reaction like to the book? and? How did that impact you? Well, interestingly enough, that was before the controversy about, you know, Chief Wahoo and symbols, and even before there was an academic who said that the Indians were not named for the Cleveland Indians. And by the way, in the 1890s, teams did not have official names. It would be the Cleveland Nationals and then later Cleveland Americans. And the newspaper reporters would, would, like, put a name on a team. And the Cleveland team was known as Spiders because the owner had seen them walking by in 1889 and said they're skinny as spiders. But someone I know actually did this research after an, an academic had published something saying, no, they're not named for Sock Alexis. And someone discovered that, yes, indeed, in 1913, there had been a meeting of the, the editor of the Cleveland Plain Dealer and you know, people from the team, and they were talking about Sock Alexis, who had played you know, almost 20 years before and decided to name the team Indian. So that team is named for an actual person. Now, we want to get into the controversy. Chief Wahoo, if you've ever seen, well, you've probably seen it. I have. The Hank, Indians have put it on that. It is disgusting. Luke, and, hold, you know, Luke, and, hold on to that thought, because I want to get into this. We're going to have to take a, a pause here in a moment. I want to have enough time to do that. We'll get into talking about this whole Chief Wahoo situation when we come back. Uh, we're in discussion with Luke Salisbury on our program. Luke is the author of The Cleveland Indian, The Legend of King Saturday, and No Common War. We'll talk about No, no Common War as well in the course of our discussion. He has joined us on our program. He's a former secretary, vice president of the Society for America, American Baseball Research. He has a lot of information to share with us on our program this Sunday morning. It's Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Solter. We're in a discussion with Luke Salisbury on our program. Luke is the author of The Cleveland Indian, The Legend of King Saturday, and No Common War. He has joined us on our program. A lot of information to share, as I've mentioned a couple times. He's a former secretary, vice president of the Society for American Baseball Research. He has contributed articles to many baseball books and magazines. He's a very passionate um, baseball fan, as he mentioned. He's a... Red Sox fan as well, um, and he's got a lot of information he's sharing with us in uh, our discussion. Now, you were talking um, about uh, a couple of different things in um, response, and I cut you off at a point when you were starting to talk about Chief Wahoo, okay? And I want to be able to give time to get into this in discussion. Um, first of all, would you explain for folks listening to us, some of whom may not know, who was Chief Wahoo? Well, Chief Wahoo is this cartoon figure of allegedly a Native American with a 
big, huge nose. And it is, and it gets into this fascinating area, Bob, of how important are symbols and how important are caricatures. And if he's going to be a symbol for Native Americans, it's awful. It, I mean, he looks like Groucho Marx, but worse. And I'll tell you, if it were Rabbi Wahoo, it would have been gone tomorrow. It's taken years to kind of get this stereotype off their uniforms, and they're going away from it. And to give you an example of how strong symbols can be, we don't see people flying the Nazi flag, and for very good reason. And that, of course, you know, shades into this whole issue of the Confederate monuments that uh, you mentioned before. Now, these things matter, and what exactly do they mean? And Native Americans, I must say, my friend, the Puerto Rican poet Martina Spada, wonderful poet, by the way, says that if you'd been the victim of 500 years of genocide, you might be a little touchy, too, about how you, your ethnic group was represented, and rightly so. So I think it takes a long time to educate people about symbols, because it goes back to history, and how do we teach it, and how much do we know and I think it's fascinating now that there's all this issue about Confederate monuments. All right, let's and I, let you me, know, how let me, do you teach? Let me follow history. up on the, the Chief Wahoo situation, then we're going to get into this whole uh, Confederate uh -huh. mon monument situation, too. Um, you know, the question comes up, and I think it's a natural one to explore, so I put it to you. When we're talking about history, some people will say, that they feel like history is being taken away from baseball when you get away from an original logo, in this case, the Chief Wahoo logo. How do you respond to that? Well, you know, you don't have to have an offensive logo. Think about the Chicago Blackhawks. That's a team that, you know, has a name from Native Americans, but the Blackhawk on that image is, you know, it's dignified. It represents power. The problem with Chief Wahoo is it's a stereotype in a cartoon that makes somebody look funny. I mean, if you go back to the old newspapers, you can find many horrible cartoon representations of African-Americans. I mean, it's very simple. We wouldn't want to have, you know, a logo on a major league team of step and fetch it. I mean, you know, all these things are not all the same. You can have a logo that is, you know, that does not demean anybody. And so, uh, by the way, when it comes to history, as I always tell my students, history is not very nice if you really get into it, but it's always very interesting. I'm not saying you take something like Chief Wahoo and try to erase it like 1984 from the past. I think you should educate people as to what exactly, you know, this history is. And one of the fascinating things about Sock Alexis is he appears playing, you know, Major League Baseball only seven years after the massacre at Wounded Knee, which is really the end of any kind of uh, Indian resistance. Not that they were resisting at Wounded Knee, they were just massacred. And so that that's where history gets so interesting to teach. And I found it much easier, you know, teaching college students because so much of it is so ugly and it's how do you teach it without getting emotional about it? And that's difficult. So how did you teach it? Well, part of it is, you know, using literature and fiction and, you know, and basically just trying to tell the truth, but tell it 
not in an emotional kind of way. I mean, the problem about educating people is if the teacher or anybody comes off as trying to control you, have power over you, act like he's smarter than you, more educated than you, you have to make it in some sense democratic where people are choosing. But as a good teacher, you know, you, you try to guide people in the right way. One of the right ways is not to avoid the facts. And, you know, I know fact is becoming a controversial word, but there actually are facts. And then the other aspect of this is what you're talking about is history, okay? And um, history in and of itself can be controversial just from the standpoint of Some people have the belief that the generations who you see and I have seen in college classrooms, because that's part of what I do when I'm not here as well, um, that those young people, and in some cases not so young people, there's a perception that they're not interested in history. Do you agree with that? Well, I think it depends how it's presented. Bingo. One of the, you know, the great things. Sorry, Bob. For oh, bingo! I say because that's. I think that's the key. Yeah, <clears throat> and from the '60s on, there's been much more rise of teaching kind of the social history. I mean, it doesn't have to be dates and kings and presidents in general. You know, what were women doing? What was happening to, you know, minorities? What was happening to regular people? And that, you know, brings us full circle back to using fiction. Uh, you know, I think you can get students interested in, in fiction. You can also use movies because it's interesting. Lord knows any, we've all had teachers that could take any subject and make it boring and we're if we were very lucky we might have had a few that could take any subject and make it interesting and i, I do think unfortunately students are more interested in the bad things that happened in history than the good things but you know, i think you know, it, history ultimately is stories and if you tell the interesting stories and try to give people the tools to analyze and come to their own conclusions about the stories, then you've really gotten somewhere. Okay. Now, at the same time, you're also dealing with generations of people who, in some cases, are very focused on this idea of visual learning. It's not like there's... Um, video from the Civil War that, you know, you can show. How do you reach them? Well, there's a few good videos like that long movie, Gettysburg, is very good. But now it really fascinates me because having tried to write about baseball in early Hollywood, how do you write about war? Now, I've never been in a war, but my father, grandfather, and great-grandfather were all wounded in big wars. And when you talk to people who've been in war, they almost can't describe it. But people have been writing about war since the time of Homer, and maybe before. And I think in, in narrative, in language, 
if you have an image, you can get really good ones. Like, for instance, in my novel, No Common War, and this actually happened in my family, these two Salisbury brothers came down from North New York because they knew one of their sons had been wounded, and they arrived the day after the Battle of Antietam, which is the bloodiest single day in American history, and they each talked the surgeon out of amputating. Both their sons had been wounded. And I spent a long time describing this horrendously awful scene where you've got four acres of wounded, you've got men on haystacks, you've got men on planks having their arms and legs cut off. And I think you get a sense of how terrible that war was. And after my great-grandfather survived, because everyone practically got infection because they didn't know about you know, sepsis and antisepsis, when he got back to Sandy Creek, New York, he had to run a piece of silk through his wound in his ankle for a year to keep the wound from closing on the surface. They didn't know why, but they knew it would get infected. Now, that kind of image, I think, brings home to people that, you know, it's actually a fact just how awful these things were. Because you know what it is about history? You have to connect it to people's imagination somehow. And I think ultimately that's probably done better in literature than with facts. In writing No Common War, was there, in your mind, an age group that you were seeking to reach? No, but I'd like to think, because it's written in a pretty direct style, in the voice of two of a father and son. And I think it could be read by, well, I think anything can be read by bright people from about the age of 12 on, as I'm sure you did when you were young, when you read everything. But it's also, you know, Civil War is so brutal that I, I wouldn't want children to read it. But I know that's quite an issue because we've had this YA genre that actually sells books where the other genres tend not to. But no, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say this is a YA book. And I think all the things I've written are definitely aimed at what we used to call grown-ups, whatever that means. <laughs> Luke, um, when we're talking about the Civil War, in many cases... People never use a term that we hear discussed in other situations. But I want you to talk about the Civil War and what has come to be known as post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, you know, I didn't realize, I knew the outlines of this story about, <clears throat> excuse me, the Salisbury brothers, the silk through the ankle, you know, how terrible those battles, because the 24th New York Volunteers, four or five major battles over the summer of 1862, and then were just, you know, decimated at Second Bull Run in Antietam. And, <clears throat> wow, and I didn't realize that when I was when I actually wrote the book that like the last third of the book would be Civil War PTSD because of course if you put your imagination into what it was like to be Moreau Salisbury and every morning at dawn especially in the freezing winter be out running a piece of silk through your ankle 
you know, I have them becoming addicted to morphine because morphine could be bought at the corner pharmacy. You didn't need a prescription. There were more per capita drug addicts in 1865 than any other time in American history because of all the people that have been wounded in the Civil War and the absolute availability of morphine. You buy it in a little yellow bottle and drink it. And I didn't realize that, in fact, I'd be writing about PTSD. I had to be very suicidal, and he manages to survive. And, you know, they didn't have a word for it. And years afterwards, doctors came up with a phrase, Civil War heart, which was for men that seemed to have nothing physically wrong with them, but had terrible things wrong with them psychologically. And, of course, it's what we call PTSD. And I think... All wars, you know, the men suffer from PTSD, the women too now, and people at home suffer. And again, I think a piece of fiction can get you into people's heads and maybe give you a better sense of what it felt like to be wounded in that horrible war. Luke Salisbury is talking with us on our program. He's the author of The Cleveland Indian, The Legend of King Saturday, and No Common War. We're going to talk more with Luke. We'll also hopefully be able to work in some thoughts from some of the folks listening to us as well. Our number here at The Fan, 877-337-6666. It's Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. We're in discussion with Luke Salisbury on our program. Luke is the author of The Cleveland Indian, The Legend of King Saturday, and No Common War. And he has joined us since we started our program at 6 this Sunday morning. What I said we would do as well is to um, open this up for folks who are listening to us. You want to join us in discussion because some of the things we've touched upon probably have struck a chord with folks listening to us and the area where we're about to go, I have a feeling, may uh, touch upon um, an area where some people may feel passionate, uh, to say the least. 877-337-6666 is our number here at The Fan. Now, we move into this discussion that we've alluded to a couple of different times, Luke, in this discussion, and that is the situation with these Confederate monuments, okay? And there's been a lot of debate about the future of Confederate Civil War monuments in this country. History teachers are in a bit of a complex situation because on one hand— They're charged with presenting a complete history lesson. On the other hand, comes this idea of, do you discuss Confederate monuments or not? Where do you weigh in? Oh, you have to discuss them. And I think you just used the word that's the key to this, and that is complex. I mean, when you talk about the Civil War, you have to talk about slavery. And when I was mentioning that sometimes in fiction, you get an image that gives you a sense of what slavery was. I believe it's in Toni Morrison's Beloved, where it it turns out that what the slaves are getting to drink in the Middle Passage is their own urine. That's the kind of thing that you remember, and it sticks with you. And the Confederate monuments, one thing that I was schooled in, in all this controversy is when they went up, which is the 1890s and 1900, and that they were paid for largely by daughters of the Confederacy. And it was very much 
the Jim Crow era, and they go up to kind of put in your face that we lost the war with the Yankees, but we've completely come back to controlling things that had to do with African Americans. I didn't know that about the monuments. The other thing is, monuments like that, why should it be on government land? You know, put that monument somewhere else. You know, some historical society. Originally, some of those monuments were in cemeteries. So I think if, you know, citizens clearly don't like a monument, like I haven't heard anyone wanted to putting up, put up a monument to German soldiers anywhere, that, you know, move it somewhere else. You can't and shouldn't erase history, but also when something comes to mean a kind of political statement, like, say, if you, you had a Confederate flag on your car or on your license plate, now, in 2019, that means something very specific. And I'm not saying that you don't have the right to have a Confederate flag on your car. God knows I wouldn't. But we just need to have people educated as to what these things mean. And education also means who's manipulating you, who's controlling the symbols, who's telling the story of of history, because nobody does something that isn't in their own interest in a certain way. But isn't the the move that is being talked about to a large extent of wiping these monuments out, isn't that really erasing history? Well, not if you teach the history. One thing that's been suggested is take the monument down and put a plaque up. You know, absolutely should never forget history, but we should also never forget who's writing it. Key bono, as the lawyers say, who's benefiting from telling the story in this way. And I think, again, if you study the Civil War, what a horrible war to fight in. Nobody had a helmet. Nobody had body armor. The basic tactic was you were in a line largely in the Confederate Army and certainly in the 24th New York Volunteers with your cousins, with your neighbors. And when that line was hit and people went down, you just filled it in and you kept charging until either you took your objective or you were wiped out or everybody turned around and skedaddled. And then there's the absolute horror of what the medical care was like if you got hurt. So... So I'm not saying with the Confederate Army that we should honor the warrior and hate the war, as people kind of learned from the Vietnam War. But I I do think it's very interesting to understand how awful that war was. And by the way, you know, I was brought up in the cowboy and Indian era of the 50s. And now we look upon what happened in the West as virtual genocide and stealing and land, whether it's from Mexico or Indians or whatever. And that doesn't mean we should forget about the West and the frontier, but it certainly means we ought to know about some of these things. And that, that's the way I feel about the Confederate monuments. No, I, I think that the, the Civil War is still an unhealed scar in so many ways in America. All right, a couple of questions. Let's go with that very last point, because I'm glad that you mentioned that. Why do you think this is such an unhealed scar, and do you think it's possible to heal it? Well, you know, I thought that it was somewhat healed, and now it's all come up again. 
Part of it is race, a big part of it, because everything in America has to do with race at some level. And I I don't want to talk politics or political science, but to put it on a bumper sticker, the basic battle in the Civil War was, does the federal government have the right to tell the states what to do? You can't have slavery. Oh, can it tell you that everybody has to be vaccinated? things like that. And that's going on very much now, that whole business of states' rights. What can the government tell you to do? Can the federal government tell us all to do something for our own good? Or is that wrong? And that battle is going on right now. When we're talking about Confederate monuments, because I always like to think of this from the standpoint of folks who are listening to our discussion who they may never have seen one of these monuments. Um, they don't have a clue what they are exactly. How would you describe them? Well, it depends. I have never been on Monument Boulevard in Richmond, Virginia. Mm-hmm. But apparently, you've got about a dozen. And, and look, look at what a monument would be. Look at this as if you were reading something, an image in a movie. If you've got you know, a general on a big horse, and he's much taller and bigger than anyone looking at him, that is a a symbol of power, whether you figure it out or not. If you have, for instance, I live in Chelsea, Massachusetts. We have a Civil War monument. It's on a tall pedestal. But what's up there is not a general. It's just a soldier. You know, and I think that's, you know, and I don't think it conveys any sense that this guy and what he stands for is better than you are. In fact, I think it conveys a sense that he was, you know, fighting for something he believed in. And I might have to say that my mother was Southern. It was the kind of family where, as they said, you had to be 18 before you realized damn Yankee was two words. And I, I was brought up on, you know, Stonewall Jackson and Lee and, you know, how they were great generals, which they probably were. But so so I've got it from both sides. It's not that I'm just just the Yankee. Mm. You mentioned earlier the idea that or one possibility for monuments being relocated someplace other than government buildings or government property. Um, And this idea of monument plaques, basically, being posted. Why hasn't that caught on? Well, I, I think that in any kind of struggle, it takes a long time. Look at how long it took for civil rights to come. You know, it was percolating, percolating in the 1930s, and it really wasn't until the 60s that it began to be accepted. I, I think it's just a, well, for one thing, it's a local matter, but I think that's probably what's going to happen is that things will be moved. Because, you know, I'm not for melting down the Confederate monument. I'm for moving it. And when we're talking about the way in which state representatives now talk about Civil War monuments, for example, there's a situation in Florida, um, I guess it's in Tallahassee, in front of the Capitol building, uh, it's a Civil War monument that has a lot of people talking uh, there. Um, 
do you think this is typical of what we're going to see and hear in other areas? Yes, I do. I do, because I don't think this issue is going to go away. I think the people that are offended by the Confederate monument on, on land that they're paying for are not going to shut up about it, and I don't think they should. Then this brings us to another area, and I'm going to go here in this discussion. People talk about this idea of the Confederate monuments coming down. What about that Rocky monument in Philadelphia? Some people argue that should be taken down because they'll say boxing is barbaric. Well, that, that that's an I happen to be a boxing fan, and it is barbaric, though I think mixed martial arts are worse. And I, I think the issue about boxing is, you know, at least a, at one one way you choose to do it. I know the people that do it are poor and come from tough places. But, you know, where are we going to stop telling people what they can and can't do? And for me, I would allow boxing. And interestingly enough, because if someone wants to make the case, well, if you're going to stop boxing or that's bad, what about football? You know, where... Where do we stop? And, you know, b- by the way, you know why? I asked a lawyer why in boxing that nobody is sued for head injuries. And I think that's because, what is it, there's a legal phrase that you accept responsibility for this, and that's not what, you know, eight-year-olds playing peewee football do. But I, but I do think that's an excellent example about the Rocky statue because it shows you how perhaps far and even silly things can go. But I, I'd like to give you an example because I don't want to come off as a self-righteous northerner. We have had a little controversy in Massachusetts about our state flag because it has an Indian on it, and over that Indian is a disembodied sword in, in an arm. And one thing people really don't know about, and this, I must say, is in my novel, No Common War, and in my family, is something called King Philip's War. King Philip's War was in 1675, and it was an attempt by King Philip, an Indian, to put together a confederacy and drive out the English. It lasted for a year, one in every 10 colonists was killed. This is the bloodiest war per capita on North American soil. Half the Indians were killed or sold into slavery into the West Indies. Now, people don't know this. This is an out-and-out genocidal war. I I think a lot of people, I didn't know till I researched it, that Indians were sold as slaves to the West Indies. And by the way, the good Puritan fathers in the Massachusetts Bay Colony felt completely justified because this was paying paying for the war. And so now, when Native Americans have objected to this sword over the India, the argument was going, well, the sword, it's supposed to mean peace, because the Indian's looking down and the sword's not not hitting him. But that is a complete matter of symbolism. And what does it mean? And, you know, I don't know whether we'll change our state flag, but I can see why people are complaining about it. So it's, and by the way, a lot money in New England was made selling cod to southern plantation owners to feed boys. 
And if ever in school you learned about the China trade, the China trade's wonderful, made a lot of money for families in Boston. And it wasn't just bringing China and stuff back to New England. That was part of bringing goods back to New England. But part of it was taking opium from India to China because the British got as many people in China addicted to opium. I don't want to give you too many historical facts. All right, we're going to take a pause. In our discussion, Luke Green, come back. We'll talk more with you. Luke Salisbury is talking with us on our program on The Fan this Sunday morning. Welcome to the second hour of our program on the fan this Sunday morning. This is Bob Solter. Long after our 8 o'clock update, it is Rick Wolf with the Sports Edge program. Ed Randall will be by after our 9 o'clock update. Talking baseball here on the fan. Luke Salisbury has joined us since we started our program at 6 this morning. He's the author of The Cleveland Indian, The Legend of King Saturday, and No Common War. He has talked with us about a number of different things, including getting into a discussion, too, about this whole situation with um, Confederate uh, monuments um, and uh, talked to us a little bit about the Civil War, shared some thoughts, um, what I said we would do, as well as try to open this up for some of the folks listening to us to join us in discussion because, frankly, on this program, they often take us into interesting areas, and sometimes they're areas where, frankly, I have not even expected we would go. 877 877- 337-6666 is our number here at The Fan. Let's go first to Brian in Monroe, who's been holding forever. Brian, thanks for holding on so long. Welcome to The Fan. Hey, guys. How you doing this morning? Good morning. Good morning. Um, so I was just thinking, I personally, when it comes to the monuments of history, regardless if the history was bad or not, I believe we should let that stay. But I'm curious about how you guys feel about things that are happening nowadays like people driving around their cars waving Confederate flags and stuff. I think, personally, that kind of sends a message that maybe you don't really don't want to be sent out there. I'm going to hang up now and let you guys talk. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your call this morning. Interesting point to bring up. Luke? I think that the caller makes an excellent point, and it's a matter of we've been talking about education. What did that flag mean then? What does it mean now? I think it's an, a very aggressive statement now. And, you know, again, not trying to erase history, but you need to know the way it's being used now. And I think that the Confederate flag is a very aggressive statement right now. 
Back to the phone we go. 877-337-6666 is our number here at The Fan. Jason in Richmond has joined us. Jason, good morning. Welcome to The Fan. Hey, what's going on, man? And like I, I was telling you, producer, I, I hate that. I'm actually driving on the turnpike. I'm from Queens originally. I retired from the sanitation and moved down to Richmond. So I'm going to always be Jason from Queens, even though I live in Richmond. <laughs> it's just hard to get the New York out of me. You know, I'm, I'm one who feels, and I'm black. I want to preface this. I don't get offended easy. I'm 51. But the monument problem, and it is a problem, is one to me that's highly offensive in the sense that the history is being celebrated. And I've gone to the Civil War museums. I want to go to museums. I believe you have to put things like that in museums because you have, they were put up initially not caring about half the citizens that were there. Didn't give a damn about the citizens. And so we're put up to say we don't care how you feel about it. And it's Monument Avenue, but the only monuments are these white Confederate soldiers. That there were blacks in Richmond who did great things, and when monuments were built about them, they were put in other places, not on Monument Avenue. They just recently put off the ashes uh, monument on there. They initially put it somewhere else. Bill Bojangles Robinson is from Richmond. They put his somewhere else. Maggie Walker from Richmond. Hers was somewhere else. So there's an inconsistency about it. To me, that's disgusting. That I feel like every state should have a monument of Christmas addicts. Because he's the first person to die for this country in the, in the, in the um, Revolutionary War. Christmas addicts. No country, I think maybe Massachusetts, no state has a monument to him. You know, if that's the case, put a monument of Nat Turner there. If you don't care, if you care about all your citizens then, but you're not, you're going to just keep these soldiers who are completely, they were traitors to the country. Put them in the museum. That's where they belong. They don't belong on the street where I have to be reminded of it. It's not fair. Well, Jason, very well said, Jason. As I said earlier in the show, I've never been on Monument Ave in Richmond, but you've just given me a very good sense of what it feels like to walk on it. And I agree with you. Where would you put those monuments? They got Civil War museums down there. Mm-hmm. They have a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. They have a bunch of them. Yeah. You know, they just, mm-hmm. just go to a museum and put them there. I think even in New York, where you got some of the Confederate generals who were in the regular army before the Civil War, you have to can't honor these people anymore. They were traitors to the country. No matter how you may feel as a, as a Southerner, you have, it's like me killing your family member. But it was my family, not my family member who killed your family member. But I'm just telling you, hey, look, man, I, I don't mean no offense, but I have to celebrate this family member of mine. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, mm-hmm. do it. I celebrate him in my house then. Yeah. I shouldn't, you shouldn't yeah. have to be reminded because I have to honor my heritage, which was savage, which was appalling and disgusting. It tried to obliterate my heritage, and in many ways it did. I don't know about where I actually come from. I don't have the same lineage of an Italian-American or an, an Irish-American who traced their roots back because you chose to erase me and treat me like I was just an animal. And I have well, to be reminded of, of Jefferson, even for Martin Luther King's Day. Martin Luther King's Day got put there. The South, the Southern region tried to say, well, we want to celebrate Jeff Davis' Day also on the same day as Martin Luther King. 
can you even equate the two and try to say that you're not a savage? Well, I, I agree with you. Jefferson Davis was lucky they didn't hang him after the war. You make a very good uh-huh. point. But, yeah, I, and I'm very glad that we're having this discussion right now because this is a way to try to stop erasing that history. When you talk about who tried to erase history, you're making a very good point, Jason. Jason, thank you very much for your call. Travel safely, too. Uh, thank you, sir. Thank right. you. Next up on the phone is Sam in Morristown, who's been holding for a long time. Sam, thanks for holding on. Welcome to the fan. Hey, thanks, guys. Uh, I just want to say first on the monument thing, it's a little bit shorter of what I really want to talk about is, you know, I couldn't agree with Luke Moore. I mean, the monuments are super important, and we need to preserve them. And, and, I mean, the guy before me is obviously super animated and powerful about that. I think he understands it's important, but museums are where these need to be, where people can choose to see them and go see them. Um, but the thing I really want to talk about is something you guys talk, talked about a little while ago. I just had to get to my destination before calling. Um, but you talked about PTSD uh, in the Civil War and, you know, just even World War, before it became what we have now. Um, my family is American history, back to the, you know, the Mayflower. We have, you know, records and diaries. And the females in my bloodline kept unbelievable records. And I'm a history nut, not necessarily in American history, but specifically in my family. And there's a point where uh, one of my relatives in the Civil War comes home after being injured. I have his, you know, his release form, the big colorful document and everything of his story. But his wife talks about how in her diaries in, in detail, how he, you know, he's reserved to himself. She finds him, you know, staring out into the sky for, you know, hours at a time and not communicating with people, you know, short fuse style behaviors. And, you know, they didn't have the community that, you know, you have now. You don't have the groups and you don't have the, you know, the, the pharmaceuticals that people take now. Um, even if you want to talk about medical marijuana, it's like they didn't know what that was back then, uh, like we do, and what it's what it's used for. And it's uh, pretty incredible how a lot of these guys came home and and just almost self inflicted the pain on, and had no one really to help them except their family. And I I just thought I wanted to bring that up and see what you guys thought of like where that angle was when it came to the recovery of of the soldiers. I'm gonna hang up now. Thank okay, you. thank you for your call and your patience on the phone, Luke. Oh, that was a great call, and I was going to tell the caller, has he thought about publishing any of those diaries, or at least putting these diaries and letters on the Internet? Because it's so important. One thing people don't know is that there were a million and a half men after the Civil War that couldn't work because they had arms and legs amputated, or they were going through soldier's heart, what we now call PTSD. In fact, it was a huge problem. By the 1880s, they started some soldier's home. In fact, in Chelsea, Massachusetts, I live at the base of a hill where there's a soldier's home on the top of it that was actually started in the 1880s for Civil War veterans that couldn't work. It was a real problem. See, that's when going back to my novel and what you get out of novels is we think of war, if you haven't been in one, as these you know exciting moments. Why was the war fought? What was going on? What were the generals doing? But after those seconds of terror and hours of boredom, what happens when you get hurt? What happens when you come home? That is a tremendous story. And I just think that was a great call. It certainly was. We are going to take more calls as well. 877-337-6666. Luke Salisbury is very kind with his time. He's joined us on our program. He's the author of The Cleveland Indian, The Legend of King Saturday, 
and No Common War. He's talking with us after our 8 o'clock update. Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program here on The Fan. It's Rick Wolf along with the Sports Edge after our 8 o'clock update before Ed Randall comes in. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Solter. We're in discussion with Luke Salisbury. He's the author of The Cleveland Indian, The Legend of King Saturday, No Common War. He's our guest on our program. He's been very kind with his time. Our phones are absolutely jammed with folks who want to speak with you. 877-337-6666 is our phone number. Uh, next up, we go to Dave in Irvington, New Jersey, who's been holding for a while. Dave, thanks for holding on so long. Welcome to the fan. Well, Bob, it's great to speak with you. I don't know if you recognize my voice. Of course I do. We haven't spoken in a while. <laughs> Listen, you're a legend in terms of radio callers in New York City. <laughs> and, and I know about that, Dave. Okay, I just want you to know I know about that. <laughs> wow, isn't that something? Um, uh, Mr. Salisbury, good morning, sir. Hey, good morning to you. It's always good to talk to a legend. <laughs> well, you know, I, I wanted to ask you what your opinion is about the whole controversy surrounding reparations for slavery. Now, let me say, uh, you know, um, uh, up front that I am a black American of Caribbean descent, but but I am absolutely opposed to the idea of reparations for slavery because, first of all, you know, there's no one living in 2019 slave master or slave, and I feel that it's a big racial hustle, and, uh, you know, this whole discussion is being orchestrated by individuals, you know, who just want to get rich quick, you know, and they feel that the way to do it is to blame, and I hate this term because we're all Americans, regardless of skin color, but white America, quote-unquote, you know, there's this whole push to blame so-called white America of 2019 for atrocities that were committed over 100 years ago when there's nobody living today to, you know, to either dole out the money or or, or take the money. You know, and um, why should you and Bob Salter, you know, who, I, you know, I presume happen to be white, have to go in your pocket and pay, you know, someone like myself, you know, money, uh, you know, for something that you had nothing to do with. You, were, In fact, neither of you, neither of your grandparents, you know, were a thought in their parents' mind when slavery happened. Luke? Well, this is a, a really serious question, and uh, I'll be perfectly honest when you say key bono, who benefits. I think if the Democratic Party puts reparations in their platform, they guarantee they lose the election. But that's yeah, a whole other yeah. discussion where I see the idea of reparations is tough. I, I was actually asked by some black colleagues at Bunker Hill Community College to teach African-American history, which was quite an experience. And we used to talk about this. And I would say, well, do I get something special because my great grandfather was so badly wounded in the Union Army? But I'll tell you my bottom line on this is I think there should be some sort of program, and it wouldn't be racial. It would be for people who can't afford it to get access to education. I wouldn't call it reparations, but I'd call it something, you know? I mean, I, I think that without question, I agree with you that it's tough to blame white people for everything, but there are an awful lot of people of color not doing well, you know, really not doing well, and I don't think a lot's being done for them, so... So, I, yes, I think there should be something. I wouldn't call it reparations for slavery, but I think that income inequality is a terrible problem, getting worse all the time in America, and I wish there was a serious solution to it. 
Dave, thank you for your call this morning and your kind words as well. Well, the, the pleasure is mine, you know, and and I think that, you know, let me say this, you know, in closing before you, you know, go to another call because I know the board is jammed. You know, you don't solve income inequality by punishing the rich in favor of giving to the poor, you know, uh, because, you know, I, I happen to be a conservative Republican, you know, and I, and I think that, you know, that's another problem where we have the, the hard left who wants to punish someone who came honestly, you know, by their riches and say, you have to mm-hmm. give it up, you mm-hmm. know? Well, it, it's a real problem, isn't it, what to do about income inequality. And I agree with that. I wouldn't blame one group of people, but I sure hope we find some way to deal with it better than we are now. Dave, thank you for your call this morning. We've got to move along. Thank here. you. Ready? Next up, let's see. We go to Raphael, who's been holding for some, been, been holding for some time in Vermont. Raphael, good morning. Welcome to the fan. Hey guys, how you doing, eh? I'm doing uh, well, thank you. I, I'm gonna say a few, I'm gonna go very quick, but I'm gonna say a few things. The only thing I wanna for full disclosure, I am not an intellectual. I call myself a history junkie. So I want the man to clean up some of the things I'm gonna say, uh, to put them in a more eloquent way. Let me say something. The Civil War. I think like what he was saying. I think we are making a big mistake. We could have learned so much thing about the Civil War if we took the time to, to come out feeling sensation and take the learning lesson. Like, for instance, I met an 80-year-old family in Vermont, 80-year-old, a couple, wife and husband. And you know what these two, women, what these two people are working on? These people want to clean up the name. They are dedicated 20 years of their life to clean up the name of Long Street because they feel society did not give General Long Street enough credit for what he did for the Civil War. And this is two Northerners. And they went back and they have, they have, they have things like they're going to write a book about that because I did not know. Long Street, when Grant, Long Street and Grant, they went to school too. They went to Westwood together. They were in California together. And Longstreet and, and Grant met his wife over Longstreet Farm in Georgia because they used to leave California. When, when they were assigned in California, they will come. Grant will stay in Longstreet Farm. And then after he moved up, and then when his vacation ends, he go back, meet Longstreet, and they both go together. So... What people don't understand is, in order for you to get that meeting, that meeting that took place to end the Civil War, Longstreet play a big part because he's because Longstreet and Grant they knew each other very well. So that's why when Lee was sitting on that horse before he came to meet Grant, and that little shivery soldier came and come to him and said, General, what do you think gonna happen to us? He remove his hat, play with his hands, say, son, Grant will do the right thing. He will do his right. So there is force. I don't know if people understand. Those people were human. We can learn from these people. And all that nonsense we are going right now, that war, this is the only place on earth where 600,000 people die as a result of the war. No hanging. No hanging. The, 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 people don't understand the value of those things. And to finish up, 
I want people to understand what Lincoln, that Gettysburg address, he wasn't, when he finished, people like to take that, that, that phrase and wave it like, oh, the government of the people, by the people and for the people. Yeah, he would say, say that, but the phrase that people should pay attention to is that little phrase after, this form of government shall not perish. So that means he's giving a warning to everybody, even the people up north. If one day you too, you start acting up, they're going to be another Gettysburg for they're going to be another Gettysburg. I want people to understand that country is here to stay. And no matter what happens, that's why I tell everybody, understand what Trump is going right now, Congress is fighting. But at the end of the day, America will do the right thing. Period. Raphael? I, I may not say the eloquently, so you clean up for me because I'm a history junkie. I'm not an intellectual. Thank you. Thank you very much for your call. Would you just like to respond? Raphael, listen to us on the air. Bob, you have great callers. And Longstreet's a very interesting figure because he was controversial in the South right after the war for having moved too slowly. People were looking for who to blame for why we, we lost, if you're on the Southern side. And then there was quite a movement to get Longstreet's reputation back again. And so the the couple that's so interested in him, I mean, one way to look at the Civil War is if you, you're going to talk about just the military history. Now, the great point of that they went to West Point together all those generals knew each other and that's so interesting they'd all fought together or most of them in the mexican-american war and the way the north treated you know the way the union army treated the confederate army you can keep your side arm and go home and stuff that's very important because the confederate army or parts of it could have continued to fight a guerrilla war in different parts of the south they'd been defeated in virginia and but the flip side of that is yes, the, the country managed to come back together, and largely at the expense the expense of African Americans, who, as people should know, in 1877, with the deal about the election of 1876, the states, the Southern states, got back their ability to run things. And so, yes, the country was in some sense healed, but it really was at the expense of African Americans, ex-slaves. Back to the phone we go to Keith in New Haven, who's been holding forever. Keith, thanks for holding on so long. Welcome to the fan. Hi there. Uh, the, the point that I was looking to make, uh, and this is a very interesting conversation, especially on WFAN on a Sunday morning, which is great, um, that the South almost won that war. What a lot of people don't realize is the Southern monuments today and the rebel flag and a lot of the chutzpah that Southern men and women have is because they have a sense of pride in the fact that they fought a war against really the greatest military machine of that era and almost won. England was backing the South. The only reason why the North won is they had two things. They had an unlimited supply of men, and by the way, a lot of Irishmen from New York were killed in the Civil War to free black slaves. A lot of people forget that. And the second thing they had was unlimited supplies and munitions. Uh, where I live right here in New Haven, they made 80% of the guns in the world back in the 1860s. Wow. So uh, that's the point that I wanted to make, that we've got to lighten up against people from the South. And back when I was working 
in sales, I had a lot of interface with guys from the South, and they're a bunch of good old boys. A lot of them are racist, but a lot of them are not. And they just have a sense of pride in the South. That's all I wanted to say. Keith, thank you very much for your patience, and thank you for your kind words your call this morning to the fan. Would you just like to respond, Luke? Oh, yeah. I mean, by the way, Anybody could spend the rest of his or her life studying the Civil War. It is fascinating. And there's no question that at the beginning of the war, first couple of years, the South had much better generals, Lee and Jackson and so on. McClellan, the Union commander, didn't like to fight. And the caller makes a great point. And to, to the Battle of Antietam, by the way, which, of course, is at the center of No Common War, my novel, I went down when I was researching that with my brother, 140th anniversary. We went out at three in the morning because we wanted to see what it was like when the sun came up over that cornfield. And at that night, the Civil War historian, James McPherson, who's probably the, the great Civil War historian of his generation, gave a lecture on why Antietam was the most important battle. And it's because once the Union had, they called it a victory, McClellan could have destroyed Lee's army afterwards, but he didn't. He just sat around, but it did stop Lee's invasion of the North. That was when Lincoln felt he could do the Emancipation Proclamation. When the Emancipation Proclamation was made, that really ended any chance that Britain was going to recognize the Confederacy, because the English working man hated slavery. You know, the mill owners would have been very happy to have Confederate cotton coming in and so on. And, and so that battle is really important. And militarily, the South had gotten beaten in the West. The Union under Grant and Sherman out West, you know, had come down the Mississippi River, cut the Confederacy, not exactly in half. And one way of looking at that war is those two generals come east, because unfortunately, Grant was willing to take any casualties, and the caller is exactly right. Okay, the hold, Union hold had, that. you know, Luke, five Luke, times Luke, hold the economy. That, hold that thought. we got to pause here. We'll come back in the home stretch, talk with a few more folks. we got a couple other areas to cover in our program this Sunday morning. It's Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter, Rick Wolf, along after our 8 o'clock update. Ed Randall is along after our 9 o'clock update on The Fan. And we are in a discussion with a guest who's been kind to join us and stay with us on our program. Luke Salisbury is the author of The Cleveland Indian, The Legend of King Saturday, No Common War. And he's talked with us about a number of different uh, thoughts in uh, this discussion. There's a couple of things I want to touch upon with you. I also want to try to finish up with some of the folks who are on the phone here, too. Uh, let's go back to the phone, back to Pete in Vegas, who's calling us. Pete's been holding forever. Pete, good morning. Welcome to the fan. Good morning, guys. How is everybody doing today? Very well, thank you. How are things in Vegas? Uh, 107. Oof. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, uh, it, won't be, it won't be bad. It's only going up to 110 today and 111 tomorrow. There we go. Wow. All right. It's starting to really cool down. That put, um, put it, puts it in perspective, yes. Yeah, and we got grasshoppers now attacking the city. But, oh, yeah, I was reading about that online. That's that's crazy that grasshoppers are coming coming out of nowhere. Yeah, I was waiting, I was waiting for the locusts to come, but we got only grasshoppers. <laughs> but um, I, I have a couple comments, and I, and I was wondering, you have someone here who's obviously very intelligent and knows history, so I'd like to ask him a question. My family's all Italian-American. My grandfather and grandmother came here off the boat from Italy in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And my whole family, my, my dad was one of 21 brothers and sisters. 
Oof. None of us ever, no, nobody in my family's ever gotten unemployment, any benefits, anything. We've only contributed to the American dream. When my grandfather got off the boat and started having children, he said to my dad and his, and his siblings, you're now an American Italian. You're not an Italian American. And they believed in that. In other words, we were American. My question is, and I know a lot of other people, not just Italians, there's a lot of proud Irish, proud Polish, proud Puerto Rican, proud everything. But when you talk reparations, why would you take money from people who had nothing to do with slavery? Like I heard the gentleman's rich history. His mom was from the South and, and all that stuff. But we've never done anything to hurt anybody. We've only contributed to the American dream. So why should we be penalized in any way for doing nothing but right? And never the word racism. My dad was a, an Italian-American who was one of the first members of the NAACP. So how should we be penalized for not being racist? That's my first question. And my second question is, when it comes to the South and the North, what about the people who fought for the South who never owned the slaves? What about, do you think that rich slave owners fought? I think it was mostly middle class and poor people who fought just not to be overthrown or not to have their land taken. I don't think it had to do with slavery. I think it had to do with survival. And that's all I would like to ask. Thank you. Well, those are very good questions, and to take your, your last point first, my southern grandfather would always say that 90% of the Confederate Army didn't own slaves, and people were fighting because their homes were invaded. True enough, but, it, it, but of course, their whole Confederate government was based on protecting slavery. As to the other part, that's why I don't like the idea of reparations. The gentleman is absolutely right, but you would have to say that any immigrant that came to this country with a white skin had a, a better chance of getting somewhere quickly than if he didn't. Which isn't to say that the Irish and Italians weren't very prejudiced. Because one interesting thing about the Civil War, and people don't know this, is that the worst race riots in American history were the draft riots in 1863. Because the Irish in New York City were very upset about coming off the boat and going right into the Union Army. And in fact, those riots were so bad that they were not put down till the Union troops from Gettysburg finally appeared in New York City, and it ended. And I might also add, in terms of being proud that you're Irish, that Irish brigade took tremendous casualties because they were tough and they were used. It was very much like being the Confederate Army. They were put into action again and again. In fact, in the Battle of Antietam, the middle part of that battle, it was the Irish brigade that, that broke the Confederates at the sunken well. It's not railroad, but at the sunken road. So, again, it's, you know, we need to know the nuances and complexities of things. But, the, uh, but another good call. Definitely. Let's see if we can do one final one here to Rob in Lake Success, who's been holding forever. Uh, Rob, Bob, good, good morning. Good morning, guys. I must say this has been a fascinating show, and I love history on a sports station where what we talk about is sports history, going back to baseball and stuff in the 40s and 50s, whatever. Now we're talking about much more important stuff. The Civil War, uh, I just want to make a comment on and I'm, i got to buy your book because it's the one war that we fought against each other. It was the I know it. Ev everybody who died or got injured was American, whether you're north or south, it doesn't matter. And, and that's, that's the important, the amazing part about history. We must learn, we must never forget these, these type of stories. Now, as far as the Confederate flag being flown, you know, in cars and stuff like that, that I'm against. But as far as 
remembering and having monuments, that's okay, because the point of history is to never forget. And, and this is what this is all about, what you're bringing to the light. Now, look at the American Indian. They, they, they were just here, and, and look what happened to them. They were basically slaughtered because the Europeans came over to, the, to this country and wanted to just, you know, live here, and, and the, the Indians were in the way. And, and that's another story that isn't really talked, I think, enough about the Native American. I mean, it's bringing to light now. I want to just share a fast story about war. As a physician, I had a patient many years ago. You're going to love this. He told me about Stalag 17, which is World War II, obviously, that well, for the Stalag Hogan's heroes, that goof of that uh, camp. <laughs> he jumped out of a plane on a mission, 18 years old, jumped out of a plane, Wound up in Germany for two years in Stalag 17, the real Stalag 17, not the, the tunnels that they escaped from in that goof of Hogan's Heroes. No one ever escaped, by the way. He comes back to America, finds out that the plane that was in a dive, that he was on the bottom as, as a gunner, jumped out, couldn't communicate upstairs, winds up, the plane made it back to England. They finished their tour of duty. He spent two years in the camp. Horrors. Absolute horrors. He says, I asked him, how did it feel on that split decision? He said, I was 18 years old. I have no regrets, and I did what I thought I had to do, and I'm thankful that I'm still here living out my life, and he's no longer with us. But that's what the war was like back in, for, for us, for us as Americans, and we never need to forget these things. And that's why I'm glad you brought a show today, Bob. I really enjoyed this tremendously. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for your call and your kind words this morning, too. Luke? Well, I would say amen to that caller. He is absolutely right. And there's nothing like hearing stories from people that were actually there. Mark Twain once said, when poets talk about the moon, it's invariably boring. When men who've been in war talk about war, it's invariably interesting. And by the way, my dad was in Stalag 7A. He'd been very badly wounded. And I can remember... Once he was watching Hogan's Heroes, and I said, you think that stuff is funny? And he said, Luke, we laugh at many things in life that aren't funny. Hmm. That puts it in perspective, definitely. Um, after our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program. Ed Randall's Talking Baseball follows our 9 o'clock update. One thing we did not touch upon that um, is timely and affects an area of New York State, and specifically here we're going to talk about the Hudson Valley area. The Ulster County Fair, location is what I'm talking about here. There's a southern country rock group, Confederate Railroad, that lost a summer fair job because of objections over the use of the Confederate flag in its logo. What's your reaction to that? My reaction to that is that the band has every right to have the Confederate flag and do whatever they want, but someone who's paying them to perform has every right to cancel if they don't like it. And and if they think it's really unjust, well, take it to court somewhere. Yeah, I, I saw that story. I thought it was one of the most interesting stories that's come out of this whole controversy. Well, isn't it a, an issue of freedom of speech in terms of they're being able to use it 
Oh, absolutely. You can fly it and use it if you want. But if I'm paying you to do something, as this happened in, in Atlanta, where the black couple saw the guy who was going to repair something is flying a Confederate flag out of the back of his van, and they just said no. You know, the, we don't, the freedom goes both ways. You have the freedom to do something. Somebody else has the freedom not to pay you to do it. Okay. Now, a question that comes up in discussions like these. The Confederate flag itself, is the flag racially insensitive? It is in 2019. And you do have to remember that people who went to battle under that battle flag were fighting for a side that was going to keep slavery. And a side that after they lost the war, quite successfully took away all political rights from African Americans. By the 1890s, Jim Crow was everywhere in the South, just when those monuments were going up. So we keep coming back to it, Bob, but it's history and you need to know as much about it as possible and then make up your mind rather than being ruled by emotions, by just seeing that symbol and responding one way or another without thinking about it. When you see the Confederate flag, what does it represent to you? Well, I know my brother lives in South Carolina and used to have bumper stickers that said, heritage, not hate. And I just don't think that's the case. You want to know the truth? If I see the Confederate flag, I assume the person flying it's a Republican. And it's certainly not against the law to be a Republican, but... No, I think the Confederate flag should either be in your home or in a museum. But that's, but again, you certainly have the freedom to fly it if you want, but people have the freedom to react to it the way they want. All right, a final question. This goes back to an area that we started our discussion with today. Luke Salisbury is talking with us on our program. He's been very kind to be with us for both hours of our show today. He's the author of The Cleveland Indian, The Legend of King Saturday, and another book entitled No Common War. I asked you at the beginning of this discussion what it was that got you into uh, writing. There are people who are listening to this discussion today, some of them eh, young, some of them not so young. A whole lot of people have always had that desire, always had that thought, always had that belief that that great book is somewhere inside them. we got about a minute left in our program. What would you say to them as a form of motivation to get them to move on that? Well, I'll tell you very specifically, if you're having trouble writing a book and you know you want to write a book, first think about it, not necessarily make an outline, but sit down every day before you do anything, go to work, do the internet, write for 20 minutes. Do that for a couple of weeks. Then you'll have some text to work on. But you're also probably going to discover that I had written three books before I got a book published, that it's a long, very tough road, unless you're very lucky and an angel sits on your shoulder, like on F. Scott Fitzgerald, and you're famous when you're 23. It's going to be Edison saying it's 2% inspiration, 98% perspiration. Writing is rewriting, and it's a lot of work. But if you got to do it, there's nothing that puts you in the present, that puts you where you ought to be for me than writing. The voice of Luke Salisbury, thank you very much for being so kind with your time on our program today. 
Great program. Really enjoyed it. After our 8 o'clock update, another great program is along. Rick Wolf is doing the Sports Edge program. And, uh, well, let's see. How can I phrase this? The best way is to say, after our 9 o'clock update, Ed Randall will be by. He'll be talking baseball. Our thanks to Ed Arzuman. Fantastic job technically for us this morning. This is Bob Solter. Have a great Sunday, everybody. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.